0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Nikki Savva has been reporting on Australian politics for many decades now. Nikki's seen 10 Prime Ministers move in and out of the Lodge. And she served inside government too, when she worked as Press Secretary for Peter Costello during the Howard Government era. But in all her years in Canberra, Nikki Savva has never seen a Prime Minister quite like Scott Morrison. In the last election, Scott Morrison likened himself to a bulldozer and Nikki is inclined to agree insofar as that by the time he left office, he bulldozed his own party into the ground. Nikki Savva has spoken to many of Scott Morrison's former colleagues for her new book and her assessment is brutal. And she says this in her opening chapter. All the people who mattered, including those closest to him, already knew everything they needed to know about him. They knew he was secretive and that he lied, that he was stubborn, that he bullied people, that even if he sought advice, he seldom took it and that he had little interest in policy. Nicky Sava's book is called Bulldozed, Scott Morrison's Fall and Anthony Albanese's Rise. Hello, Nicky. Welcome back to Conversations.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here again.
1: When Scott Morrison outfoxed, Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton sort of slid through the middle of them to become Prime Minister back in 2018. What was your assessment of him back then?
0: Well, my assessment of him was that if you gave him a mission and gave him a script, um, he would fulfil that mission and, and stick to the script, as he did in the uh, 2019 election campaign, as he did when he was um, Immigration Minister, when he you know, stop the boats. He had someone to tell him, do this and do it that way, and he did it. So I thought, you know, he seemed to be competent. I had also made an assessment uh, sometime before that, based on his history in Parliament and in the Liberal Party that he would one day lead the party. Mind you, I thought it would be as opposition leader because I thought he would make a very good opposition leader. But when I was uh, researching for my previous book, Plots and Prayers, I learned a lot more about him than I had known previously. And that started to set off a few alarm bells uh, for me anyway. And I think, in fact, when we uh, spoke last, I did uh, go a little bit into his character and how I thought he was uh, manipulative and Machiavellian and, and deceitful. And that was my assessment of him then after talking to a number of his colleagues. And... After the election, when I got to know him better, not personally, but from his performance, my assessment of him worsened, in fact. I thought he was worse than that. In fact, I thought he was the worst prime minister that I had ever written about.
1: You spoke to quite a few of his former colleagues. How willing were they to speak with you? Did you have to sort of pin them down or were they really quite happy to talk about their experience of serving under him?
0: Look, there there were a few who were not prepared uh, to go on the record who were very reluctant to say exactly what they thought and to be quoted on it. And I was reluctant also to quote um, people just as sources, although ultimately I did uh, for a number. But mostly they were on the record. Even people, I thought, at one point wouldn't even speak to me, then spoke very frankly to me. And people like Stuart Robert and Alex Hawke, who were two of the colleagues who were closest to him, who would do pretty much anything that he asked of them and then who ended up being so disillusioned with him, so unhappy with him, that they, I think, wanted to put their side of the story and their side of the relationship, if you like, and how they believed he treated them, but also how he treated others. There's a
1: missing voice here, and that's Scott Morrison's. Did you approach him? Did you offer to let him tell his side of the story?
0: Well, I approached his uh, former press secretary, Andrew Carswell, who was still kind of handling uh, his media inquiries twice on different occasions and asked if he would speak to me, and the answer came back no. But can I just insert here that I I was um, interested that Carswell himself spoke to me and said what I thought were some pretty significant things for a former press secretary to say publicly. So, you know, I thank him for his subsequent honesty, if not for his truthfulness while he was in the job.
1: You point out that when Scott Morrison became Liberal Party leader and then Prime Minister back in 2018, that he owed the moderates in his party room pretty much everything. I mean, they decided they weren't going to support Julie Bishop and they'd go straight to him in order to thwart Peter Dutton, the more right-wing candidate, from becoming Prime Minister. And yet they didn't ask anything from him for their role in kingmaking him. Why didn't the moderates in the party room try to hold Scott Morrison's feet to the fire? I mean, during the course of his government, the whole government and their seats were at stake after all. Why didn't they act, Nikki?
0: Well, they just sat there and let him do pretty much exactly as he wanted. I think there was a a bit of a mystique that built up around him after 2019, because while they thought they were going to get smashed if uh, Dutton had won the leadership, they thought it might just be an honourable loss under uh, Save Morrison. Save the furniture they, kind of
1: move. Yeah. yeah,
0: they didn't really expect him to win. And uh, when they did win, they thought, oh my God, he's a he's a bloody genius. Um, who would have thought? And so they were initially a bit spellbound by that and then they didn't want to do anything to rock the boat or to upset him, and in any case, he would never listen. He would never take on board advice that was given to him by either the moderates or by the people uh, who were closest to him, like Alex Hawke and Stuart Robert. In fact, I quote Alex Hawke saying he was addicted to executive authority, and they all gave him advice, and he ignored all of it. And they sat there pretty much and they copped it because they weren't willing to do anything that might upset him or might, you know, create an air of disunity around the government when sometimes, you know, the old saying is disunity is death. But a bit of disunity is not a bad thing because it tells people that there are different voices inside the government speaking up for people who can't speak for themselves. and. Look in my conversations with them, I would say, you know, why don't you get in there and do something? Oh well, yeah. well, the National um, Party
1: often spoke up for their party positions and and won. They fought and they won. What does this tell you about the moderates? Do you, are they a faint-hearted bunch? Does there not really that much belief in their their moderate policies?
0: I think they are faint-hearted. Look, the Nats don't care about anyone except the Nats, and they will go out there and they will fight to the death for whatever ever it is that they want. I mean, they practised open sabotage, especially after um, Morrison brought down his climate change policy.
1: After Scott Morrison's surprise 2019 election victory, as you say, there was a lot of awe and respect for him as a political tactician at the time Uh, I mean he did made that comment on election night saying he really always believed in miracles and there was that feeling that he was a he was a kind of a Machiavellian uh, genius when it came to tactical politics and this was a widespread belief Uh, even in the left of politics I think it's fair to say but how about Anthony Albanese did he share this awe of Scott Morrison's political skills
0: uh no he didn't and Look, initially, most of the Labor Party after 2019, they're in pieces because they were convinced they were going to win. Um, They did not think for one moment that they were going to lose that election. So a lot of them uh, dropped their bundle and, you know, thought, well, this guy is going to be there for as long as he wants. You know, he'll probably get several more terms. He'll do amensies. You know, we'll never be able to get rid of him. But there were a few clear thinkers inside the Labour Party, and one of them was Albanese. And what everybody came to realise, you know, after the, um, after the gloss wore off, was that it wasn't so much that Morrison had won the election, but that Bill Shorten had lost it. Bill Shorten was not a very convincing character, I don't think, anyway, and I think a lot of Australians agreed with me. And also um, he saddled himself with $400 billion worth of new taxes. Well, Albanese himself came across a lot better than Shorten and he devised the strategy that eventually won the election for Labor by selecting a few key areas that he was going to target you know, people like saying it was a small target. Well, it wasn't that small in retrospect, but he was determined to keep the focus on Morrison. He was determined to make it a referendum on Morrison, on his record, on his character and on his achievements, which in the end were not that great. And he was um, very tough Albanese and very shrewd and also uh, very resilient.
1: Talking about two quite tough, shrewd politicians you're talking about here. As Prime Minister and Opposition Leader, they'd sort of look at each other across that dispatch box, across that huge table that's right in the centre of the House of Representatives. What were their conversations with each other like across that big table off mic? Nikki, what do you know about that?
0: Uh, it seems they were pretty nasty. Morrison would try to uh, bait. Albanese off mic by saying, just you wait, you know, I haven't started on you yet. I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to tear you down. And Albanese would just lean across and say, listen, mate, I fought tougher people than you in my time, which he had, obviously, in the New South Wales Labor Party. I mean, he he didn't get where he is by being frightened of conflict or or being uh, put off by defeats here and there. He, he was, like I say, a pretty resilient sort of character. But he was also good, uh, I think, and his uh, colleagues say this, at building relationships. So people that, you know, liked him, liked him even more after they got to know him better. But for those who didn't like him, uh, like um, Morrison, and Albanese says that Morrison never extended any of the simple courtesies to him during that time, and you know, which he says, fine. And actually, when he told me that, it was fine because um, he was sitting on a couch in the lodge with the fire blazing, uh, drinking a glass of wine. So Morrison should have been smarter. He should have realised that Albanese to have got to where he got with his kind of background, must have been a very strong person, and should never have underestimated him, and he did.
1: One of the most corrosive developments in the way the federal government's been run in the recent, recent decades, and I think this began under Kevin Rudd, was the domination of the Prime Minister's office over Cabinet government, where junior advisers suddenly have more power than Cabinet ministers. This seems to have been a return to cabinet government once again. This seems, strikes me, Nicky, as not only bad for democracy, but, but also just not smart for governments to try and... ..for prime ministers to try and run everything out of their office. How bad did this get under Scott Morrison's leadership?
0: Well, I don't think it could have got any worse than it did when he actually swore himself secretly into the portfolios of his ministers. But even before that, cabinet ministers were feeling irrelevant because everything was run out of his office and uh, some of his staff were out of control when they uh, tried to deal with, you know, wobbly backbenchers. Bridget Archer, for instance, accused two of uh, Morrison's senior staff of trying to bully and intimidate her over um, a period of time because she was thinking of abstaining uh, from a vote on the cashless debit card. But everything was run out of his office and his office also operated in silos so that no one really knew what the other was doing inside that office, which kind of explains a couple of things, including why his chief of staff did not know, for instance, that Morrison had sworn himself into the Treasury portfolio. I mean, I thought, well, that was incredible to me. So he ignored Cabinet, particularly during COVID. Now, you can sort of mount an argument for that, right, because he set up National Cabinet and... And it was um, a national
1: emergency. Mm.
0: And it was a national emergency, but it, it was happening both before and after that. But even during COVID, you know, there should have been a lot more uh, cabinet consultation and discussion about um, how to handle the, the issue, for instance. Instead, it was reduced to just a couple of people.
1: Scott Morrison was open about his Pentecostalist Christian beliefs. He never uh, hid from that. How do his colleagues think those beliefs coloured his approach to politics?
0: Uh, they thought it was pretty central and fundamental. Oh, so. Um, well, they believed, right, this is how they they would put it, that pretty much everything was ordained by God for him, including the 2019 election victory. And in fact, he told us that night, I believe in miracles. But he genuinely believed that it was a, a miracle in that sense that God had ensured that he won the election. And they, his colleagues, would say, you know, he thinks that God wants him to do this or wants him to do that or God has meant for him to be prime minister. And they thought, not all of them, because some of them were part of his prayer group and believed as he did. But others thought uh, that he relied too much on his religion, that he allowed it to influence his handling of political matters, particularly the Religious uh, Discrimination Bill and also the selection of uh, Catherine Deves uh, to run uh, for Beringa. He would recite passages of the Bible that, that he had found interesting when he met with his leadership group. Now, some people found it comforting and a few others found it quite weird. And he would hold uh, pretty regular prayer meetings inside his office and also at the lodge. And sometimes it would be just him and Stuart Robert praying together to give Morrison strength to handle you know, an important event or an important uh, press conference. Uh, Sometimes it would be the prayer group or others. And there there was one person, I quote, James McGrath, Queenslander, during all the pre-selections stalemate in New South Wales when Morrison was keen to get other Pentecostals into the parliament and McGrath accused him of trying to turn the New South Wales division into a branch of Hillsong. So there were people who were very uneasy about uh, what he was doing and how he was approaching things. But there was a minority, small minority, that were in favour of it.
1: You say that when Scott Morrison and his family famously went on holiday to Hawaii, at the same time the 2019 bushfires were raging throughout the country, that his Prime Minister was pretty much finished after that. This was widely acknowledged in some quarters of the Liberal Party and some Liberals appealed Peter Dutton and to Josh Frydenberg to act to try and tear him down. How serious was this push, Nikki?
0: Well, he effectively destroyed his prime ministership when he did the runner to Hawaii during the Black Summer fires, right? People after that were saying to me, he's terminal, that's it, it's over, he's never going to recover. Well, he recovered slightly during COVID, but then he started to fall back down for a number of reasons, mainly because he fell down on the job like he didn't provide enough vaccines. Uh, quarantine was really his responsibility. He was doing nothing about it. The premiers appeared to be doing all the heavy lifting and he was sitting back and either taking the credit or or pointing out where they went wrong without actually doing anything himself to fix it. So anyway, he had that uh, brief period of revival but then it fell away, and his colleagues could see what was happening. Stuart Robert and Alex Hawke both told him, as did Dutton, to go to an election last September. In their view, it was never going to get any better. Something else would go wrong, and they would go backwards. They were starting to get frantic uh, because they could see uh, things were starting to turn sour again. So they were trooping into. Josh Frydenberg's office saying to him, you've got to do something, you're the only one who can, you know, who might get the numbers to knock him off and we're not going to win with him if he stays as leader. And uh, they were also saying pretty similar things to Dutton. But Dutton had already torn down one Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and Josh was never going to challenge a sitting Prime minister. And apart from that, they both believed that there was only one way that it would work if if Morrison was removed, and that would be if he did it of his own volition or if Stuart Robert and Ben Morton, someone else who was very close to him, suggested to him that he stand down for the good of the party. I
1: don't believe that. Do you believe that?
0: Well, they they thought this was the only way it could happen, but then they also knew that he would never go quietly. Firstly, he would never go, yeah. and then if he did happen to go, he would never go quietly and he would bring the whole show down.
1: Was this challenge, potential challenge real in Scott Morrison's mind, a potential challenge from Peter Dutton or Josh Frydenberg?
0: It was, um, according to Alex Hawke, um, who told me that Morrison was pretty much panic-stricken by it. He just flipped. But he wasn't so much worried about Frydenberg. He was worried about Dutton. What he thought would happen was something similar that he engineered, in effect, um, in 2018. He thought maybe uh, someone like Michael Suka, who actually pretended to be close to Frydenberg but was actually a Dutton man, would get up in the party room, move a motion to declare a spill uh, that Frydenberg would put up his hand to challenge, but then Dutton <laughs> would emerge as the leader after. I mean, so that's how his mind a- And there would worked. be
1: no, no apparent blood on Dutton's hands as a result of that. But 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 Dutton exactly. wasn't keen. He wasn't going to do that.
0: Well, um, I'm sure that if there was a spill, I don't think Dutton would have sat back and allowed uh, Frydenberg to do it. There were people who believed that uh, Suka was playing a double game, but it obviously never happened. For all those other reasons about, you know, Morrison would probably never go quietly and he he would make sure that whoever got up would never make it through the election in decent shape. The
1: government fell behind in the COVID emergency in providing vaccines and then in rapid antigen tests, but their response to the economic emergency was... By any standard, imaginative and effective, JobKeeper was flawed, but it basically worked. Are Scott Morrison's critics prepared to grant him that, or do they want to give credit to Josh Frydenberg for that?
0: Well, he's the Prime Minister, so Mm. it wouldn't have happened if he'd said no, but he was uh, resistant in the early stages to wage subsidies, even though the British had moved down that that path. Uh, he wasn't very keen on the idea. But after we went into the first lockdown, when there were hundreds of thousands of people literally lined up outside Centrelink, it hit him that they had to do something and they devised JobKeeper. Now, that was done on the run. It was flawed. There was a hell of a lot of money wasted, like a phenomenal amount, $20 billion. But it saved hundreds of thousands of businesses and it did save lives, I believe, because uh, people were still getting income and uh, some of them were still, you know, engaged in the workforce and others were, were getting more money than they had ever received uh, before. So it was the right thing to do. They might have gone about it the wrong way, but it was incredibly Effective. You
1: you pointed out something I'd forgotten, which was during the crisis, Josh Frydenberg accepted an invitation from Scott Morrison to move into the lodge with him, to bunk with him in the lodge during the crisis. That gave the impression of a strong team working and a couple of friends, if you like, working hand in hand and very closely together. But was it in the long run a wise move for Josh Frydenberg to move into the lodge with Scott Morrison?
0: It was a very unwise move and it was unwise at the time and as it proved subsequently, extremely so. Colleagues complained about it because they like to see a bit of tension between the Prime Minister and the Treasurer. of tension
1: should exist between them?
0: Yes. That is how how you get to good policy outcomes. You get to better policy outcomes if there is that debate, at least, and a little bit of separation between the Prime Minister and the Treasurer. Now, uh, Keating and um, Hawke, I think, proved that. Uh, Keating would uh, prod Hawke on on policy and force him along. You could never imagine Keating in his jammies at the lodge uh, <laughs> with Hawke.
1: No, and there was tension between <laughs> at times between Howard and Costello too, as I recall.
0: Most mm. definitely, quite often, in fact. And over any number of things... Not just the economy, but on preferencing One Nation, for instance. And the Republic. Uh, and mm. the Republic. Um, Costello came out very early and said that he would put One Nation last on his ballot paper in Higgins. And that opened up the whole issue of One Nation and, and its relationship with uh, the Liberal so Party. So when Scott
1: Morrison brought Josh Frydenberg into the bosom of the Lodge with him, I just wonder if you see that as a case of an overweeningly strong personality subsuming a less powerful personality.
0: The one thing that everybody says about Morrison was that he always had ulterior motives. And I think his way of handling Frydenberg was to keep him so close, to bind him so close, that he could never break free. And the way he dealt with Dutton was to put him on the National Security Committee, which he had to be because he was uh, Defence Minister and Home Affairs, but also uh, to put him on the Expenditure Review Committee, the so-called Razor Gang, which went through the budget. So he would be locked in to all the economic decisions that were made uh, by the government, and he wouldn't be allowed to say later, well, I didn't know about that, I had no part in that. So he was very clever in in the way that he dealt with people and as soon as i heard that friedenberg was in the lodge with him i thought well 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 this is his way of just making sure that uh, josh never steps out of line podcast
1: broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Now, during this time, Labor had this strategy, which was to be supportive of the government during the COVID emergency uh, and more broadly, not pick a fight every day. I remember a lot of Labor diehards at the time wanted Anthony Albanese to be more aggressive and more critical, and he was often accused of running a Labor-light leadership. What was his strategy here? Why did he play it that way, Nikki?
0: Well, it wasn't really the time to engage in conflict. I mean, the country was going through a very dangerous time. People were dying. Businesses were closing. It it was, you know, pretty horrendous.
1: People wanted governments to succeed, didn't they, at
0: that point? They didn't want the government to fail because if the government failed, what would be the end result for them? More misery wider spread of the pandemic and so on. So Albanese took a deliberate decision to be as bipartisan as he could. And uh, if you look at it, at what happened at elections uh, subsequently, the two opposition leaders who did the best were Albanese and Malinowskis in, in South Australia, because They largely uh, supported the government in whatever it was trying to do. They would try to make positive suggestions here and there, but um, generally uh, they were uh, supportive and on board. So uh, I think it was all round a very smart uh, move by Albanese to do that. And then when it um, was obvious that it was falling apart, Then um, they decided to play hardball, but they didn't do that until after it was obvious that Morrison had failed on acquiring vaccines.
1: There was serious tension between the Morrison government and the New South Wales government of Gladys Berejiklian. In public, he was was full of praise for the New South Wales Liberal government's approach, but how poisonous did that relationship get between the two governments?
0: Well, she complained bitterly to her friends that he constantly bullied and tried to intimidate her, that he would get his staff to undermine her, uh, to journalists. And at one point, it was so bad, she got her communications advisor uh, to call Morrison's press secretary to insist that they stop undermining her to other journalists, because you know they were they were just sick of it, and uh, her colleagues, uh, her friends, were accusing Morrison of gaslighting her.
1: Nikki, for years and years, for pretty much the whole of the post-war era, one of the key pillars of the Liberal Party's dominance was the preponderance of women voters in their column. Women favoured the Liberals, the Coalition parties quite substantially over the Labor Party in those post-war years, right up to, I don't know, maybe even the 1980s, maybe even to the 90s, I think. That's not the case anymore. The Liberal Party, I think, in the last election recorded its lowest vote uh, amongst women since certain organisations started keeping records back in the mid-'80s. Instead, women now are more inclined to favour Labor uh, or vote for the Teals or for the Greens. That was certainly evident in the last election. So many reasons have been put forward for this. What were some of the major catalysts in this shift, in your view, Nikki?
0: Well, I thought a pivotal moment was when he got up in the House of Representatives and told Christine Holgate that if she didn't like it, she could go. Uh, in a very menacing way...
1: You're talking about the CEO of Australia Post here. ...forced her
0: out of uh, her job as CEO of Australia Post because she had the audacity to buy uh, four Cartier watches. I mean, it was $20,000. She could have paid them bonuses of hundreds of thousands of dollars, but she didn't. It was within her ken to give them a gift, and that is what she chose to give them. And because of that, Morrison forced her out of her job.
1: How did that go over with some senior Liberals and National Party people?
0: It went over very, very badly. One person who was watching and who saw it happen was Ron Boswell, Queensland National Party senator, who had actually met and dealt with Christine Holgate because some of the things that she had done had saved regional post offices, right? It was a real boon uh, for people living outside the cities. And he had a lot of respect for her and thought when he saw it, it was the craziest bloody thing he'd ever seen. That was what he said. And he got onto Morrison's office immediately and said, look, you've got to fix this. Um, he can go back into the parliament, say he's got additional information, it's not quite as he thought, she was entitled to do it, etc., etc., and basically apologise and not proceed. But he refused to do it. I mean, he was so stubborn. And um, other Liberals, like Nick Minchin, thought it was the beginning of the end. Uh, John Howard thought there was no earthly reason for him to do something like that so publicly. And professional women, especially, but also professional men watching that thought, what the hell, you know, the Prime Minister on the floor of the Parliament, uh, sacking, effectively sacking someone who had been so effective over such a piddling thing. So I think that began uh, the desertion of women. And if you look at the kind of women who ran as Teal candidates, once upon a time, they would have run for the Liberal Party because they would have felt welcome there. Well, they no longer feel welcome in the Liberal Party, and I don't know when that is going to change. And then it also got worse after that. Grace Tame uh, became Australian of the Year. He didn't quite know how to handle um, Grace And then Brittany Higgins made her allegations uh, publicly. He also didn't know how to handle that. And, in fact, his wife had to point out the gravity of the situation to him. And then it was sort of piling insult upon insult, if you like. He gave a speech in Parliament where he, he told the women who were protesting for justice for women... That they were basically lucky they weren't being shot on the streets like they were being shot in Myanmar. So,
1: what kind of advice was he getting in his office? His his office his staff were very blokey, weren't they?
0: uh, That was another complaint that was made. Even Linda Reynolds told me it was a very blokey office. Karen Andrews made a similar complaint. She advised um, his office, and him that wherever he went in the campaign, he should have a senior woman standing beside him to at least, you know, give the impression that he he valued um, their company and their advice. But he did not have a single senior woman advisor in his office.
1: The Patsuda Advocate nicknamed him Scotty from Marketing and that nickname stuck to some degree. And he was capable of spinning quite a punchy line as a, a former marketing executive. But I'm struck... Nicky, by how many of his punchiest lines were disastrous for him, like that line, I don't hold a hose, mate. Uh, It's not a race in regards to vaccines. That's not my job. And that line, as you say, about how helpful his wife and daughters had been explaining the seriousness of sexual assault to him, it felt like at the time he was talking to some kind of an imagined Australia in his mind, not Australia as it is. What do you think?
0: Well, maybe that's the Australia he knows. That's what I came to think later just trying to work out why, why he didn't get so many things, why didn't he understand. There was so much that he didn't get that he didn't understand about what was required of the Prime Minister in Australia today. And I think just so much of it was outside his life experience. That's, that's all I can think.
1: On election night, as the results came in, it was a very strange night, I saw things I never thought I'd ever see during an election campaign. The Liberals losing Kooyong to a Teal candidate. And ne- next door, Higgins, your former boss's electorate. Higgins being lost to the Labor Party. This is an electorate that has Turak and South Yarra within its borders. I mean, my God. I just never thought I'd ever see something like that. I don't think such a thing was possible. But there there it was. That was the result. It was said by some Labor figures afterwards that the Teals would be for the Liberal Party what the DLP was to the Labor Party in the, post-war, in the post-1950s era, which was a body that had split off from its original party and would act as a break or as a kind of a buffer against that original party ever getting back into government while they continued to exist in the parliament. Do, do you think that's true?
0: Uh, that was Chris Bowen um, who who said that. He said he didn't know whether it would actually split the party, but it had the potential to keep them out of office for a very long time. And
1: kept Labour out for seventeen years, as I recall yeah. federally.
0: Yes. Well, the thing is, how do they go about getting back those people who voted? See, it wasn't just the Teals though, it was Higgins, as you say. It was also Reed and also Benelong.
1: John Howard's former electorate. John yeah.
0: Howard's former electorate. That they that they lost to Labour, not to the deals. So um Labour made some inroads there which I, I thought was interesting. And um I, I did write a little bit about Higgins because I thought it was interesting that Labour was putting in such a big effort in that electorate. And uh, Paul Erickson, who's a very smart guy, who was uh, Labor's campaign director, was the person who drove that. And they ended up winning because Katie Allen, I think, uh, aligned herself too closely to Morrison. She was a moderate. She couldn't bring herself to criticise Craig Kelly over his mad, you know, anti-vaxxer stance. And she was a GP, all that kind of thing. So, you, you look at the women who ran for the Teals and Liberals would have killed to get those women into the party a few years ago. And now, you know, they were out there calling them Labor stooges, um, Labor groupies, really, you know, demeaning and belittling them when, you know, they need to be going all out to try and get women like that back into the Liberal Party. But if you look at it, you would think, why would they? Why would they go back to the Liberal Party now?
1: The former Labor Party pollster, Cos Samaras, says one of the key indicators in a seat like Higgins, despite it being uh, having relatively posh suburbs, is that it's largely occupied by renters these days. And the other thing he wants to point out is that in the last 10 years, baby boomers have gone from being the biggest cohort in the electorate. Now it's millennials are the largest cohort. And these are people who are not by and large uh, cannot afford to buy a house. Is this going to be a huge factor in keeping the Liberals out of power for quite some time now? Nikki, what do you think?
0: Well, there's no doubt that the demographics have changed in those seats, in in Higgins and in Kooyong, which, you know, could make life um, very difficult for uh, Josh Frydenberg if ever he wants to come back. But yeah, look, the demographics have changed. The thinking of people, has changed, particularly older Liberals, you know, who are used to a certain kind of Liberal Party. I know that those people, you know, some of them are very good friends of mine and they're similar to the people in the ACT. I, I, well, I, I can't name them. They wouldn't want me to name them. But they're people who have voted for the Liberal Party all their lives, right, who are now in their 60s and who could not bring themselves to vote for the Liberal Party at the last election. So they voted for David Pocock. So this kind of dilemma that the Liberal Party faces now about how they can, you know, give those people the kind of incentive that they need to come back to the Liberal Party and – then to win over the millennials and, and the people who are following them. I think they've got an enormous task ahead of them because it's not just in the inner suburbs. It's also slightly outer suburbs as well. But that's not to say that the Labor Party... Uh, won't have its own challenges because they found too that their primary vote in in some very safe seats uh, went down significantly. So went
1: overall backwards too, as I recall on on the night. Just went a tiny bit backwards than their primary vote. Yeah. Uh, are there are there dangers for the Labour Party? I mean, the the combined two party vote for the for the Labour Party and the Coalition is at an historic low once again. I think it got up 68% for the two major parties as opposed to like, the 1972 election where Whitlam got elected was 95% for the major parties. There's some some potential problems for the Labor Party down the track here too.
0: Well, I think that's right. But um, Albanese um, has the luxury of government. I mean, he can show, he has the opportunity now to show people that there can be such a thing as good government, as, you know, a a Prime Minister who actually uh, believes in reform and is not frightened to take it on, who thinks there are things that need to change and can be made better. So I think... If he succeeds, and so far I think he's doing uh, very well, then some of that will come back. So, in in some respects, his his job will be a little easier than uh, Peter Dutton's because he is the incumbent. So he can he can fix a lot of those problems. He can go a long way to uh, restoring trust in government, and he's already embarked on that by uh, setting up the National Anti-Corruption Commission, and by holding to his promises. And hopefully uh, somewhere along the way, people can see that things actually have improved and that, you know, they will reward him for that. Maybe they won't be looking so much for alternatives because it is important, I think, to have um, uh, the major parties still functioning well for the sake of stable government.
1: Peter Dutton is now opposition leader. It's a job you say he never really wanted, but he's taken it on nonetheless. It would seem to be the most obvious thing for him to tack towards the centre. After all, he's from the right. He has impeccable right-wing credentials within the party at the moment. It would seem that the smart move would be for him to say, oh, we accept the verdict of the electorate on the need for greater targets for, uh, for zero emissions, for acceptance of the reality of climate change, on, on a whole range of different issues to em- embrace the whole idea of the voice of parliament the, uh, based on the Uluru Statement from the heart. He hasn't done that. He hasn't done that. Why hasn't he done that, Nicky?
0: Well, the Liberal Party is still very deeply divided. His um, his main aim at the moment is to keep the coalition and the Liberal Party as united as possible. And uh, one way um, to do that is by not, you know, disowning everything that happened before or moving too far uh, to the left, trying to keep the Conservatives... Um, Happy inside the party because they're actually in the majority at the moment. Yeah,
1: well, they can do that quite easily because the moderates have almost largely gone, haven't they? Apart from what Maurice Payne and Simon Birmingham, Bridget Archer, and a few others. That's about it, really, isn't it? um, It seems like he has an easy job keeping the party together, but maybe he should have a fight. Wouldn't in in this stage? Wouldn't it be wiser for him, just in terms of real politics, for him to have a fight?
0: Yeah, well, that's what I reckon too. I think, um, well, one one of the mistakes he made was not to cut Morrison loose from the very beginning, you know, after uh, the news broke about how how many ministries he'd actually secretly acquired, he should have done what Karen Andrews did, and that is say, sorry, Scott, it's time for you to go. I think um, he should have uh, done that. While ever Morrison remains in the Parliament, uh, they're tied to him and he continues to bring them down. But also I th- think uh, that when uh, the government was putting its climate change legislation through the parliament that the Liberals should have supported that. They didn't do it because they were worried about what the Nats would do. Well, look at what the Nats have done um, on The Voice now. I think it would have been much better for Dutton and for the Liberal Party if they'd taken a stand on that and said, well, the Nats are free to do their own thing. This is what we're going to stand up for.
1: Should he have gotten in ahead of the National Party announcement the other day, ahead of Dave Littleproud's announcement that they wouldn't support a voice?
0: Yeah, he should. It looks, again, like the Nats are running the show. And why? Because they are. I don't know why they should not be, you know, so intimidated by that or sensitive to it. I think people expect that when parties go into opposition, they're going to have a few brawls about things, Right. Maybe that. he's
1: playing a longer game with this, Nikki. I mean, if one of the real divides—the real divide between the left and right parties across the world these days—seems to be increasingly not the workers versus the middle class, or or the the tops versus the the uh, the workers, but the centre versus the hinterland. This is a model you see again and again. The progressive parties are increasingly the parties of the cities and the inner suburbs. The Conservative parties are becoming increasingly the party of middle to low-income people, people who don't have a tertiary education in the outlying suburbs and in the regions. Maybe maybe Dutton's written off, written off those teal seats and has a longer game to take the outer suburban, suburban seats from Labor. What, what do you think of that?
0: I think he would, he would be in opposition for a very long time if he was to do that, because there aren't enough votes in the hinterland to get him elected, not enough seats. He has to... Uh, win back some of those seats if he is to get into government. There's no other way, no other solution.
1: We saw Scott Morrison being censured in Parliament the other day and it was an interesting spectacle. A man who had once commanded the nation's attention is now an embattled backbencher and being effectively denounced by the Parliament, the most powerful club in Australia. I think all former Prime Ministers have to confront that sudden withdrawal of power and relevance after they lose an election or they get torn down. I wonder what you thought as you saw him in the parliaments receiving that censure from the House of Representatives.
0: I thought I'd gone too soft on him in the book after I listened to his speech because there was so much in what he said that I found offensive and insulting. Uh, There was one line where he said, I've apologised to the people I offended, meaning, you know, Karen Andrews and whatever... But he didn't apologise to the Parliament for treating it so contemptuously. He didn't apologise to Australians, to Australian voters, for behaving in in such a manner that threatened responsible government. So I thought it was just such a completely inadequate, can I say deluded, um, presentation on his part, full of self-pity and self-justification And no grace whatsoever. He should have admitted flat out that he had done the wrong thing. It was wrong on every level and he should have apologised to the Parliament, to all of his colleagues and to Australians for behaving in the way that he did.
1: During his Prime Ministership, there was a lot of speculation about why he'd apparently been dismissed or let go as the CEO of Tourism Australia way back in 2006 before he even entered the parliament. And now we know why. What did Fran Bailey, his former minister, say about the reason why he was let go from that job?
0: He was born without the empathy gene was uh, one thing that she uh, said to him. Um, She woke up to him long before most of the rest of us as to the kind of personality that he was, that he wouldn't listen to anybody, um, that he wouldn't take advice that he made the wrong calls on, on issues. So um, she, she made it her mission um, to sack him and Howard stuck by her. But... Um, she never said anything.
1: It's just, I'm, I'm just getting this incredible sense of deja vu, Nikki. after 2013 when a lot of people came in the Labor Party came forward and said that, that despite their serious misgivings about the difficult personalities of Mark Latham and Kevin Rudd, that they never said anything at the time despite those misgivings... It seems like you pay a long-term price for that, don't you?
0: I think you do. Um, And we have. We have as a country, I think, um, paid a price for that because it has led, I I believe, to a a decrease in trust in government and in politicians. So um, one of the things I say to people when I approach them to ask them to tell me their story about what happened, I always say, it's better to have it out there. It's better to have an accurate view of what actually happened rather than try to whitewash it because people aren't stupid in the end, you know. They know there must have been something else um, going on. So so don't take them for mugs. Be honest.
1: Do you think the public at large are becoming increasingly aware that these party members value the welfare of the party above the welfare of the nation and their, their lack of willingness to speak up in these instances. This might be yet another one of the reasons why voters are deserting the major parties.
0: That's got to be part of it. I think there are so many reasons, but that's got to be part of it. And you've only got to look at the result, you know, on, on May 21. I thought it was extraordinary. People were so clever in the way that they voted. What do you mean? Well, they, they wanted to be rid of Morrison, they had some doubts about um, Albanese at the time and they wanted to send a message to all of them that they had to do better. So in, in many electorates, they did vote strategically. They voted to be rid of Morrison and to send a message to everybody else that they had to live their game.
1: At the time, it struck me that the 2022 election was like the 1996 election, one of those great realignment elections. Is that how it struck you?
0: It did change in 96, but I think it's more profound now and mainly because of the number of independents that there are in the parliament. I think that has changed uh, also the character of the parliament and the way it operates and the way it has to operate if it's going to, you know, be more appealing to people and if the government is is going to succeed. Howard had uh, pretty much absolute uh, control of his government, but he was also a very collegiate leader who took account of all views and uh, tried to take them all into account. So I, I think this time it it is more profound because there are more diverse people in Parliament and maybe a bit harder to, to wrangle, a bit more challenging, but on the whole much better than it, than it's ever been, I believe.
1: It's been great speaking with you again, Nikki. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Richard.
1: Nicky Saver's book is called Bulldozed, Scott Morrison's Fall and Anthony Albanese's Rise. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.